This message is going to be a bit different, uh, even than some of the other ones we're going to do in this series. It may almost feel like a lecture more than a sermon, not that I'm like trying to just lecture you or talk to you in that way, but it's just going to be a little bit different in the way we're going to do it. Um, and this, this sermon, as well as really everything we're going to do in the next few weeks, is a result of many, many years of conversations, a lot of them between Don and I just in our, in our house and in our bedroom and in, as we work in the office and talking about the Bible uh, with mentors and people who have poured into us and helped us. Um, it's just, it's a kind of a collection of a lot of that as we've wrestled with this book. And some, sometimes when we're, when we're traveling or we're at an event or something and someone sees us and they know who we are from Curious Church or they know what we do, not that that's a big deal, but like they, they know what we're doing, we know where we are. A lot of times people ask us, hey, well, what makes your church any different from anybody else or what makes you unique? And that's such a hard question to answer. Uh, without just totally feeling like a narcissist and be like, well, we're this and we're this and we're this. We're, like, that's not us at all. I mean, obviously, we're just a small church in a very dense community trying to do the work of the Lord and bless people's lives. Um, and obviously, there's nothing new under the sun. So we don't want to pretend like something we're doing is new under the sun because that doesn't exist. But from the feedback that I've gotten kind of over the years from, from you all and from people who have been here and visited us and have watched our church sort of form into what it is now. Uh, uh, I, I believe there are a couple things that are very important that do make us a little bit different than some of the other churches uh, and some of the other people doing ministry here. And it's not that it's better or worse than anybody else. Everyone has been called to do different things uh, in this community and in the communities that they're a part of. So everybody has kind of that thing that makes them them. Now to, uh, to us, obviously, a very big one is our mission and our outreach and the way that we uh, really try to be here for the community and love the community, and embody the scriptures in a way that bring the community back to Jesus through reconciliation, obviously through backpack giveaway, and the, the, the toy store that we do at Christmas, and through visiting families, and the kids club that we've done so many times, and the reconciliation table, and all of those things. Um, obviously, our community in Detroit, it's one of the most dense of all the neighborhoods in Detroit, and I think that in this dense population, wh whether or not people come through our doors, for the most part, the community um, seems, to, seems to be happy that we're here. And that's something that we constantly come back to as we're praying about, God, what are we doing? What are we doing here? What are we doing in Detroit? Is we wonder, like, if we were to close our doors and pack up and leave, would the community even notice? And on some days, I feel like, oh, no, they wouldn't even, they wouldn't notice, they wouldn't care. But, but ultimately, I, I'm quite convinced that the answer is yes, they would. Yes, the community would notice. And if we, if we weren't here, it would actually leave a void in this community. I really believe that about, about you all. I believe that about, about the, the work that we're doing here, which is really a motivator during some of the hard times that we face because we do come to a lot of challenging times, and times get tough, and we're like, God, do we do this? Do we do that? What do we do? But we have to remember to just keep persevering, because the people in our community need us, and we exist for them. They're the people that we exist for. That's why we're here. So obviously, that's kind of the big one that Courage Church, for the most part, that's, that's one of the defining things about us. But one of the other things that really makes us us is the way that we here really believe in opening the scriptures and actually wrestling with them, actually talking about them. We as a body of believers, as the church in this community, we value conversation, 
And we believe that everyone has a voice and everyone has a perspective and we believe that everybody should be a part of that conversation. So we are a place that encourages and works to facilitate those conversations about even the most challenging parts of the Bible. We want every sermon to inspire many, many more conversations. And so the goal of this series is to make it abundantly clear and obvious kind of what our core value is. One of our core values is that of conversation. We're going to say it like this for the series. We want to create a safe space to ask difficult questions about the Bible. And I believe we've done this. Um, I, believe, I believe we've done this, but, um, and it sounds like a no-brainer. It sounds like, yeah, of course you would do that. Everybody does that. But, you know, most people who I know who have really struggled with the Bible, they tell me that it feels to them like spaces like this do not exist, at least not in their world. And because of that, many have just walked away from the faith entirely because the tension was just too much for them to continue living a faith that seemed to be contradictory to their values. Because the faith that they were reading about and the way that they were reading about it didn't seem to line up with what they think to be important or true or good or pure or whole. So just to make sure that we're kind of all on the same page before we even start, if you know Don and I at all, if you've been here for long at all, uh, you probably already know this, but we believe that the Bible is the story of God which finds its culmination, of course, in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus came into a broken world. Jesus served that broken world. He loved it, and he ultimately died for it as the ultimate sacrifice for us. And then three days later, he resurrected, proving death does not have the final word, that life can be breathed into, uh, into the broken circumstances in your life, that these dry bones can come alive, that you and I don't have to live broken lives anymore, that God is on our side, and that even though we don't always understand him, we know that he loves us because he gave us Jesus. We know that. And when we understand that, kind of that, that crucial part about Jesus, we then understand the next part of the purpose of the Bible, and that is uh, who we're supposed to be in the world. That's what it does. It shows us who the church is supposed to be, our mission, the mission of God so that we can live lives that embody the love of Christ that he demonstrated, so that we can live that embodiment here in our world, in a world that's so desperate for it, for that love. That's the message of the Bible. If you were to condense it down in just a couple paragraphs, that's it. That's what every story points to. And when you keep the gospel in focus, it becomes very clear that the Bible is, in fact, in line with the majority, with all, really, all of our values. Sometimes it just takes a little wrestling to understand how we get this. So let me make this very, very clear as we kind of pick up this series. We do not believe that the Bible has problems. Already we posted this on, on Facebook and already we like, the only problem the Bible has is that people don't read it right. I don't know what, what they said. I don't remember exactly what it was. But like, people see problems with the Bible. And they're like, how are you going to say there's problems with the Bible? We don't think that the Bible has problems. We believe that the Bible is exactly what it needs to be to reveal God to the world uh, that they're in, in the way that each person needs him to be revealed to them in. That is what we believe about the Bible. He's done it throughout history. Whether we read the Bible properly or not, he's revealed himself in it. We don't think that the text itself has problems, but people have problems with the Bible. We also want to make this very, very clear. We don't have all the answers. 
We don't have close to all the answers. We're also okay with the reality that we might be wrong about some of them. One thing that we do here is we, we try to avoid telling you what conclusions you should or should not be making about the parts of the Bible that are not really, really essential for your salvation and for your life and for your mission. Like one thing we believe about the Word of God is we believe it's alive. We believe that God breathed on it. He's given life to it. It's living. It's breathing. It's active, as the book of Hebrews says. But what that means, people differ about They say, well, what does that mean? And then you're going to get all sorts of different opinions on it. Um, from the moment it was written, people wrestled with that. So, so here's kind of a take on it. The, word, uh, the word, word is the word logos. We talked about it last week. Uh, and ultimately what the logos is, it's the scriptures, but the scriptures were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The, in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, 1.14, the, the, the word was with Christ, I'm sorry, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus embodied it. Right? But ultimately what that is, 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 is Jesus, he's embodying it. We hear Jesus say, I'm the fulfillment of the scripture. So Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, which means so much more than we give it credit for. And we'll talk about it later on in this series too. But in Christ, because of what he did, even the ancient texts that we read and they seem so irrelevant, those texts can, through Christ, breathe new hope and new life into your circumstances today. And we always want to be asking questions like, God, is there something in this ancient text that can breathe new life into my life? Is there something in this ancient text that can fundamentally change the way I live today? Are there things loaded in here that have the potential to change my circumstances? Are there things in here that I can learn that will help me to love people better? And that's what we're addressing today. We are addressing the question of why we wrestle with the Bible. Why do we study the passage and work really, really hard to figure out the things that it could be saying rather than just reading it for whatever the English translation says that it's saying and trying to figure it out based on that? Why do the hard work of learning who it was written to, what, what culture was like there, what was going on in that time, what the, what the author may have been thinking in that moment? Was he in prison at the time? Was he free? Was he happy? Was he having a bad day? What was going on in their life? Why does that matter? Right? Those things do matter. And then, how can we, how can we take this text and we, that we believe is living and active, and how can we let it come alive today in our lives and in our culture, a culture that's very different from the culture that it was written in? And in in, in that, that's kind of what it means when we say we have conversations. We want to talk about it. We talk about things. We wrestle with them and we draw conclusions, and we draw conclusions in community. I've said things need to be, I've, I've said things myself that need to be questioned. Like, come, I've gotten up here and I've said things, and hopefully you don't just be like, yeah, that's totally, like, you should question those things. The reality is every pastor that has ever stood on this pulpit or any pulpit anywhere has said things that need to be questioned whether they'll admit that or not. Anyone who stands up and tries to do justice to the Word of God, who tries to do justice to the Bible, and actually has done the hard work of trying to sort out some of it, absolutely runs the risk of getting some of it wrong. There's a saying in the, in the academic world uh, that, that Don taught me years ago, and I've been kind of clinging to this for a long time, and it says this, we stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us. 
So for a lot of what we do here is we build off of the work that others have done really throughout the centuries because people have been wrestling with this stuff forever. They've been wrestling with it, figuring out what does it look like in that culture and how does it look for us and what was going on there and what might it be saying. And we can't just disregard thousands of years of conclusions, but yet rather we need to consider those things in conjunction with the facts and the information that we have today. So for example, uh, we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And suddenly when that happened, we discovered certain Hebrew words being used in ways that we didn't know they ever existed. Especially in Hebrew. In uh, Hebrew is what the Old Testament was written. And in the Hebrew Bible, we have less than 9,000 words total. Okay? Uh, To be exact, 8,674 words. And over 2,000 of these are just people's weirdo unique names. So really you have like 6,000 unique words if you take out the names. So when the translators are actually trying to figure out this Hebrew language and trying to figure out what's an English equivalent for this, how do we explain what this is saying, that's what they had to go off of. They had the rest of the Hebrew Bible in the way that that word was used throughout the Bible and then other Hebrew documents that explain how it's used in other ways in that same word. So so they'd have to figure out what is this saying. So when a new document gets discovered, that's why it's so significant when we find new documents. If one of those almost 9,000 words that's in the Hebrew Bible is in that document and it's used in a different way than we'd ever seen before, suddenly we have a new potential for what what that could be saying. Does that make sense? It gives us a little bit more insight into a passage. So for instance, the word avad is the the Hebrew word for work. Uh, Or it also could be translated as worship. We've done teachings on this and why work and worship actually, in a lot of ways, are the same thing. They're incredibly similar. But the translators have to do a very difficult task as they're going through it of contextualizing what a sentence seems to be saying. And then when we get to avad, they have to make the determination. Is the saying work? Is the saying worship? Or is the saying service? It could also be that. Do we translate it as worship here? So in Exodus 9.1, when God says through Moses to Pharaoh, he says, let my people go so they can avad. Some of your translations will say, so they can worship. Other translations will say, so they can serve me. Some will say worship, others will say work. But when the same translators were translating 2 Kings 10, they translated as worship every single time. Because the writer of 2 Kings 10's, 2 Kings 10 uses avad four times in a row just to talk about the worshipers of Baal. And Baal is a god you worship in that, in that day. You're falsely worshiping him, but that's what they did. They worshiped him. So they could have translated as those who serve Baal or give their lives to Baal, but it made more sense as we worship him. So different writers wrote, diff, wrote Exodus and wrote 2 Kings, and they used the same word in slightly different ways. And then the people who centuries later are trying to give us our English versions, they have to make judgments based on all of the possible usages of a word as to what that writer is trying to say in the moment. So we stand on the shoulders of those who've come before us. But even today, we're still discovering ancient documents and new, new things that still to this day reveal to us more about the history of the languages of the Bible than we even had 20 or 30 years ago. That's why, the, that's why the conversation is ongoing. So with access to more information, we're actually able to distinctly pinpoint what actually is being said. Now, that's just a little bit of framework for you as to why some of those things are worth continuing to study on. 
But when, when Shane Willard was here, and he did his Tuesday night on the Bible, he gave us this message. Uh, and again, that message kind of kicked off where we're going with the series. And he's going to be speaking again October 22nd. So block that off in your calendar. It's going to be amazing. But he said at the very beginning of his message, he said these words. He said, messages are not meant to be agreed with. People are like, what? He said, no, messages are meant to be wrestled with. Now, some of you who heard that message have since come to me and shared one or two of the things in that message that he said that you weren't sure about. And I agree with you. And that's the point. Don and I had dinner with Shane the, the Sunday after he was here. So he speaks like 100,000 times a year. So uh, he spoke at ours on Tuesday. He spoke somewhere Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Saturday, Sunday. And then he had dinner with us before he flew out. Um, he's traveling all these other places, but he flew out of Detroit. So he stopped and he had dinner with us. And that's what, when I told him, we, we were sitting there and I, I said that even Sunday morning, you guys were coming to us and you were saying, man, we were talking about that message all week long. And some of it was that I didn't agree with it all, but, we, but you, it made you think. And, the, and, and again, that doesn't mean your conversations were all around the things that were like, yeah, that was awesome. I totally agree with it. Some of it was struggling. Again, I struggle with some of it. But we told that to Shane. We said, this is what people are saying. They've been wrestling with it all week long. They've been talking about it all week long. And he said this. He said, you know what? If people have been talking all week about the message, we did our job. One of the things that the ancient rabbis would say was this. They'd say, you know what? If we spent the entire night talking about God, even if we get the bulk of the conversation wrong about who God is, we are still better from having that conversation than not having not had it because we spent all night talking about God. God wants us to talk about him. In fact, when, when the rabbis would test their students before they would consider promoting them, one thing they would actually look for was their ability to ask questions that continue the conversation about God, that keep it going. Listen, I really believe what I'm about to tell you, and, and you may find this to be strange. I believe with all of my heart that God is big enough to use even our bad theology for his glory and for his ultimate purposes. I think it's clear throughout the, cent the centuries. Let me give you an example. For example, Martin Luther's an example. When Martin Luther uh, read Romans, he credits, uh, he credits Romans 1, 16 and 17 as really what saved him, what saved his life, what changed everything for him. It's known as the key that unlocked the entire Reformation. A very important time for us. But he reads this verse, and, and it's amazing, and he's totally changed by it, and it's awesome. But in reading it, he determined and then began this movement of preaching about the book of Romans that this entire thing is just all about personal salvation. Well, no, it's not about personal salvation. At least not the camp that Don and I are a part of. We would say, well, that's a really bad interpretation of what Paul is saying. And it misses the much bigger purpose of the entire book of Romans. We've, we spent the entire year on this book so far. Romans is a diverse, it's a book about a diverse community of believers that together bear the image of God. It's about God doing something in a community that will then change the world. And yes, there are things in that community that he addresses that need to get kind of sorted out. That, that is true. But ultimately, the purpose is about God saving a people, not about saving a person. 
We, again, we spent a lot of time on that. Yet God used that interpretation, again, in my view, wrong, to see others come to Christ for centuries to come because of that. He used that interpretation to get a hold of Martin Luther, to reveal himself to Martin Luther, and to stir something in him that incited a change that we are still seeing the effects of today. We would all be Catholic if it weren't for that movement. And Spencer says, amen. But that is the grace of God. He uses the insufficiencies of his people who are willing to put their hand to the plow and try. He breathes onto dirt and that dirt comes alive. It becomes man. He breathes life where there is no life. He literally resurrected Lazarus. He literally resurrected himself from the stinking grave. And he came back to people who got him so wrong that they denied him, who got him so wrong that they killed him, who abandoned him. He came back just to restore him, just to be like, dude, you guys got it wrong. You got everything about me wrong. But he showed him, but my love is bigger than that. My love is bigger than the ideas that you didn't get right about God and the ideas that we have about God today that just don't do him justice. Listen, church, do not be afraid. Don't you dare be afraid of getting something wrong. It's okay. There are still a lot of people today who cling to that interpretation by Martin Luther. And they're doing a whole lot of good in the world even though we believe that there's more in there and there's more they could be doing if they would grasp it in a little bit different way. But why is that? Why is it still making a difference? Because God gave it life. It was what somebody needed. I love the way that John Webster uh, puts this. He says, you know what? God commits himself to his word. He, He commits himself to it. He commits himself to the word of God and he's committed to be found in the text no matter how it happens. That's part of what it means to be alive. Now, listen, I understand that that concept is a bit unsettling, but it is totally biblical, especially when you look at the life of Jesus, the road to Emmaus, all the people after the resurrection. It's it's truly what happens. You find people in the Old and New Testament alike constantly getting things wrong about God, yet God just showing up and doing something just incredible in their midst and revealing himself to his people in more and more and more ways, ultimately revealing himself through the person of Jesus Christ. There's a story in Genesis 32 that I want to just share with you for a moment about a man named Jacob. And as this story goes, he gets into a wrestling match with a stranger. And they wrestle all night long. And somehow through this match that just goes and goes and goes, Jacob somehow prevails. And then it is revealed that the whole time he was actually wrestling God. And Jacob says these words after all that. He says, I've seen the face. I've seen God face to face. And yet my life has been delivered. Why does he say that? Well, of course, one reason could be because in that day they thought you could never see God. If you see God, you'll die. But here Jacob is wrestling with him, like in a bodily form, just like having a wrestling match that never ends with him. Yet this experience for Jacob going back and forth with God and wrestling actually shaped Jacob's theology of God quite a bit. See, now God was not just someone who was far away looking to punish Jacob for all the wrong that he had done in his life. Suddenly, God was someone who not only was close, but it was someone you could wrestle with. Someone you could question if you needed to because he's not intimidated by your questions. And here's the kicker to that story. 
And I think the re- and I, I believe this is the point of that story. Again, we wrestle. Maybe I'm wrong. In the end, God changes Jacob's name, and he gives him the name Israel, which means wrestled with God. Now, Israel was not just the name of Jacob. Israel then became the name of the people of God. All God's people, the chosen people, the people who would journey back and they would journey forth and they would be in relationship with God and they'd be out of relationship with God and they'd be in covenant with God and then they'd break the covenant with God back and forth and back and forth, trusting God to deliver them, building their own golden calf and God wanted to destroy them through the Red Sea, to the promised land, through the exile. But they were always God's people. They were the ones he chose, and the name that he gave them was Israel. The name that they gave him was, you wrestle with God. To be Israel, it means, yes, we are the children of the living God. But in its very name, it indicates that we're going to have to wrestle with the things of God. If everybody just took the first thing that they heard someone say about God at face value and they accepted it and they built their whole lives around it, the world would be a very destructive place. People have done it before and it's gone very, very, very poorly. But God is not intimidated by our questions or our attempts to make sense of his word and figure out where does this fit in our worlds. Think about the poetry in the book of Job, just real briefly. The whole thing is basically this wrestling match between Job and his friends about how messed up it is that God happened to him. And Job's just like, God, where are you? What the heck are you up to? Why are you doing any of this? And in that dialogue, Job himself says things that most of us would consider blasphemy. Blasphemy. I mean, we we did a whole thing on that. He builds this awful foundation of thinking God's doing all these things. He starts saying things like, God, basically, God, you're the devil, is basically what he says by the end of it. Or he shifts toward the end. But yeah, in Job 42.7, God actually, right before it's over, criticizes Job's friends, saying this. You, he said, my anger burns against you to his friends uh, and your two friends, for you have not spoken uh, of me what is right as my servant Job has. See, Job said a million things wrong. He built his entire narrative of God on things that were not true of God. Yet his wrestling ultimately led him back to God, to God's character. And in the end, Job knew, God, you're good. I know you're good. Yes, you can do anything. Yes, I questioned you. But you make it known to me that you're good. We were created to wrestle. We just were. This is, why, this is part of why we exist. But, but here is kind of part of the problem with that. And why we have to take this very, very seriously. And I know today's just, uh, I told you to be a little different. I just, I want you to grasp this so you can have a framework as we're moving forward with this. For centuries, really good, genuine, God-fearing, Jesus-loving, God-seeking people have dedicated their entire lives to studying a specific part of the Bible, just like even one section. And they've come to the exact opposite conclusion that somebody else has who spent the exact same amount of time on the exact same passage. Half of the world of faith believes that the gifts of spirit are alive and well today. We fall in that camp. We believe in that. The other half of the 
world actually believes they ended in the first century, and a portion of those who believe that actually will go so far to say that what we teach about this is heresy. Half the Christian world thinks that God chooses us and salvation has literally been determined from the very beginning and it has nothing to do with us. The other half believes that there's at least some free will or something to do with us and our ability to choose God. Half the world thinks Jesus is coming back before the tribulation. The other half thinks he's coming back after the tribulation. The pansy half thinks we're coming back before. And I'm just joking, we're of that tradition too. (laughs) Same Bible. Same translations, same access to the same commentaries, the same information, the same historical facts, yet different conclusions. We're going to address uh, this issue and some of the other specifics uh, as they come up in more sermons, but this is very, very important. We cannot hold on to non-essential things so tightly that we let it get in the way of unity in the church. Augustine once said a quote, I've shared it before, and I'll share it again because I love it. It's highly important to this. He says, in essentials, we have unity. In non-essentials, we give liberty. You have, you can, you're, it's okay if you differ on that. But in all things, charity. Which, this is a loaded quote in and of itself, But this last line in particular, it speaks volumes of how the church is called to love the broken. More than it is called to argue with people who are already saved. It's called to get down in the dirt with broken people. To love broken people. But it's also saying that even in those things in which we do not agree, those non-essentials, we can still live hospitably toward one another. We can still be gracious and still be generous toward one another. But here is why we wrestle with the Bible rather than just taking it at face value. The fact is, the more we learn, the more amazing it becomes. The more we learn, the more beautiful it becomes. The more we know about history and what was going on and how that makes sense of the things that we're reading, the more powerful that book becomes. The more encouraging it becomes, the more countercultural it becomes, and the more just it becomes. This essentials, non essentials thing, it's so important here. The things that the Bible clearly not only says, but lays out to be essential to our salvation and to us living the Jesus way, that's essential. Jesus is essential. The death of Jesus, bearing the weight of our sins, that's essential. The resurrection of Christ proving that death cannot hold him down and that death does not have the final word and that we too can be resurrected, that we can come alive today in this moment. Like, that puts the final stamp on God's deity. That is essential. But it's very obvious that bad interpretation without having that center has led to disasters. You can't do, if you don't have that center, you cannot do any of this. You should not be trying to interpret the Bible if you cannot at least come to grips with this. Because think about this, like the Crusades, right? Much of what's going on in the Middle East even today. The problem is not that they miss Jesus, but that they miss Jesus in the mission. Because all of a sudden it becomes about something that's not even remotely in there. And it's It's bad. It all has to be filtered through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ and its implications on the church and our mission as being the image bearers of Christ 
bringing hope, bringing love, bringing life, bringing wholeness to all the places that are empty and that are broken and that are void and they don't have any love in them right now. The center is essential. And at least in our view, this is not up for grabs. Is Job poetry or is it history or is it something in the middle? That's a non-essential. We can talk about that. We can wrestle with that. We do talk about it. We talk about it because that's what it means to do theology. We don't let it define us and we don't let it put a wedge between us when there are differences. But we do talk about it. You know, theology is what we're doing when we talk about God. Dawn has said this to us a million times. She'll get up here and she'll explain this to us. You're all doing theology if you're talking about God. It's, it's a fact. It's, it's not simply something that takes place only in academia. It's not something that only pastors do. Every person in this room who considers themselves to be a follower of Jesus Christ is a theologian. And what you do when you have that conversation about God with your wife, with your friends, at the coffee shop, at the church, wherever it might be, when you, have, when you wonder, hey, where was God in this moment? Did he seem to be missing? When you talk about your pain, all of it, it's theology. When you talk about what God's doing in you and the things he's stirring in you and the dreams that you have and the things that he's put in you, when you talk about the book of Romans and what it actually is all about, you're doing theology. Please hear this. It is not the job, and, and some of you might be like, oh, if I'm out of here, listen, it is not the job of the church it's not the job of the pastors. I, I should say it that way because the church does have a little bit different role. It's not the job of Don and I to bring you all the answers. It's not the job of Don and I to bring you every conclusion. I believe it is our job to bring the gospel. And I believe it is our job to help you in your spiritual journey to navigate what the gospel looks like in your life and how we can kind of embody that as a community and we can give suggestions there. We're going we're gonna to do a whole message in this series on authority and the authority of Scripture. Um, we, we believe the Bible has authority. But in your life, you have got to understand this. You will only give the Bible the amount, of authority, uh, the amount of authority as the person who you deem to be your biblical authority and how they've translated the Bible. Like, let me try to explain this to you. Everybody has a worldview when they, when they read the Bible. They, they, they have a lens that they look at it with. And Everyone gives way to different parts of that, to the Bible. They think this is the most important or this is the most important, including the people who translated it into English. You're giving them a lot of power if that's the only thing you read, and that's fine if that's where you're at. But even the people who translated it into English in the first place so that you can read the Bible while you were laying in your bed at night, they looked at it and they translated it through the lens of which their lives were at and their culture was at, and think that's... That's, how it, that's just how it is. So where does the authority lie? Well, first and foremost, it lies in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. But when you're trying to sort out all these other details, you can't just say, well, the Bible says it, and that settles it, or I believe it, that settles it, whatever. It doesn't really work, because the same translations that have been settled in many ways over the years settled it in different ways. If you go to a Lutheran church, the authority of a passage may be something different than a Pentecostal one does. Communion is a prime example of that. We both value communion. We hold it very, in, we hold it in the highest regard. We hold it there. They may not think that we hold it as highly as they do. I believe that's not true. I believe we do. But we view it through a very different lens and what we think it means and what we think it 
represents or to them what it actually is. So there has to be some determining factor in your life as to what authority you allow into your life when it comes to the Bible and what the Bible says. Does that make sense? Now, you don't want that authority to just be yourself. Though that is the temptation. If you translate the Bible against your own worldview all the time, things will get crazy. That's how people start cults. There's no sounding board. There's no, it, just, it gets out of control. You can't do that. But I am also not the biblical authority, nor is my wife. But the church is. The body is. We are meant to come to these answers and how they play out in our community. We're meant to come to those answers together. I mean, for goodness sake, that is why they killed William Tyndale. William Tyndale was killed so that you could have a Bible. Because before that, it was just me that had the Bible. It was just the church that had the Bible. And they chained the thing to the pulpit so that nobody could come up and they could get get it for themselves. And nobody knew what it actually said, so the church could make it say anything that it wanted to say, so it could control people. When Tyndale made the Bible more accessible, people could start reading it for themselves, and more importantly, they could start talking about it amongst themselves and in community, and start talking about it and wrestling with it. figured out what it did and didn't say. But it didn't take long for people to realize this is not what I've been taught. That's why we had the Protestant Reformation. Luther's 95 Theses was a resistance to the concept that the church leaders should have all the power. We, collectively, the church, our power lies in the communion with each other, and our communion with God. And that is how we approach the scriptures. We need conversations to hold Don and I accountable. To hold every pastor, whoever gets up here and interprets a passage, accountable. And that's not to throw stones at us if we get something wrong. Please don't do that. That misses the entire point of all that we're doing because we are flawed human beings doing the hard work of trying to sort out God in our community and sort out theology in everyday life. And even the best people get it wrong sometimes. But if there's no accountability, then what happens is even the best people, you give them more power, they have more opportunities to fall. And chaining the Bible to the pulpit is the perfect example of something like that. Human beings are not God. But collectively, as a whole, we're certainly more powerful than if any of us ever try to have a go at it alone. It's the same in theology. In closing, there's a uh, Hebrew word, very powerful word used in the, in the Hebrew language, is the word kavod. We've, we've talked about this word, kavod, kavod. I've probably said it both ways. It's, it's one of those words that has several variants, and it's a little bit flexible in its meaning. A lot of Hebrews like that. But in the Bible, you often translate kavod as honor, as in honor your father and mother, the Ten Commandments. There it is. Kavod, your father and your mother. But in other places, it's translated as glory. We talked about that in Romans a little bit. So when we sing all glory and all honor and praise to your name, in Hebrew we're saying all kavod and kavod and praise to your name. But literally what it means is heavy or weighty. 
So when it's used to say honor, it's saying you give great weight to that person by honoring them. You, you, you give them great weight. You, you don't take them lightly. You believe that they have something worth, you, you know, they're worth something. It's value. Value is measured in weight. So you are attributing great value to it. So when you get into passages uh, which use kavod like glory, though, it really gets even more interesting. Kind of like in Psalm, uh, Psalm 19.1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, the way that the ancient world perceived passages like this was that even the thought of a world so infinite like this, the heavens, the stars, the way that it just goes and goes and goes, the thought of that was so infinite, it was so heavy it would literally weigh you down. You'd have to catch your breath when you think about how big this is. So people who would try to sort out the scriptures back then, they would, they would have said things like, man, when you look to the heavens, that should overwhelm you. It should be bigger than you because we can't even see a fraction of how far it actually goes. And in a world like that, for you or me or anyone to think that we've arrived at a place where we can't go any further, that would be one of the most offensive things that we could ever say to God. Today, we have the same types of discussions about God. Only discussions, not so much about the stars. Yes, they're still infinite. They keep going. But we have a lot more understanding and a lot more technology that allows us to see what's actually going on up there now. We, we can study the stars, and for the most part, we can make sense of it. And yet, there's still something about God that's just bigger. Something that makes people, out of reverence, just be weighed down by the thought of even trying to speak of this God so as not to put him in a box when we know that he created the entire world and he holds it in his hands. There's always going to be things about God that we cannot quite grasp. And yet God, he, he continues to reveal himself to us in all the ways that we need him to so that we can be the people who our world needs us to be. So in every moment that we need him, he shows up in that way. That's, that's what happens. That's, that's, the, that's what it means that the word of God is living and active. God will show up in the way that you need him to. And if we're too timid to talk about him, we will rob other people of hearing about him through the perspective that we have. And it's a unique perspective. Your, your perspective matters. And it, it may be the exact thing somebody else needs to hear. I can't tell you how often I've seen this happen. I think I'm saying something so clearly, and I'm just saying it, and I say it over and over. It's so clear coming out of my mouth, but it just isn't clicking. And then my wife will get up, and she'll say it in one sentence, and then all of a sudden, poof, the lights will go on in people. And I'll be like, what the heck happened? Well, I don't get it, right? And their life has just changed forever, and that's it. Well, we need more voices. We need to talk about it. We need people involved in that conversation. People need to hear it the way that you're going to explain it. We don't know everything about God. But we know that he has commissioned us to speak about him and to tell people about him and to share him with the world. Because one thing that we know about God more than anything is that he's good. And we, we know that. So he's so good that he would give up his only son. His son would literally come and lay down his life and die for us. So in the end, we wrestle with much of the other scriptures, the non-essential scriptures, because we just don't know. And we want to know. We, we want to know God in the best way possible. 
And every time we talk about him, I really do believe that we get closer, not only to him, but to each other and to a community. That's what theology is. Theology is a community issue. And we are a community that is committed to it. Make sense? Jesus, thank you for your cross, for your faithfulness, for your love. God, we thank you that you do miracles, that you've been so faithful in our lives and we can trust you to make us whole. We can trust you, God, and we can look at your word and we can see how you've been so faithful and how love, your love that defines you, God, is, is what drives every work that you do, God. And we can look at that and we can have faith that you are going to make us whole and that you want us today to be whole and we just have to receive that miracle. God, I pray in this place for those waiting for a miracle, wondering if there's a miracle, hoping for a miracle. God, that you would just remind their hearts of the wholeness that you have for them and that you would deposit the miracle. If it's one little piece at a time or it's the whole reality, God, I pray for the miracle to come today. If you're believing, God, for a miracle in your life today, just, just lift your hands to him today. Just lift your hands. I'm believing for a couple miracles in my life and I'm believing that God has wholeness and he has a miracle for the people around me and for my own life. God, send the miracle, send the hope, send the faith that you still do miracles. We've seen it in your word. We've seen it in our lives and we want to see it again. God, we trust you. You are faithful. And right now we surrender to our own thoughts and our own wills that your faithfulness and your miracles, God, will be our reality. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. We love you, Jesus. We've got a lot of reshaping to do. I grew up in a really solid church that had a lot of really great theology. But I grew up a little confused about some things in scripture that I've, I've been doing my master's degree in theology two years now and this journey has been hard because God's taken some things like women in ministry, women should be silent. And he's had me step back and look at that and ask myself, do you really think that women are supposed to be silent and you should sit down and everything that I've given you is not for you to share. And as I explore the context and the, the text, the actual original Greek text, and I look at what, what it says about women, and then I think about the world then, and how women weren't even allowed to be educated because they were treated as dogs. And then I realized that silence is an attitude of the rabbis. It's a position of education. He was saying, women, sit down, learn with me. You can be educated too. We don't see the world the way the world feels sees you. We don't see you that way. We see you worthy of this education. Be silent and learn. And as I learn these things, I realize that when I sit alone with my scripture and it's not about community, I'm just plain confused and it frustrates me. We have a lot to learn from each other. Don't sit alone with your scripture. 
We see Romans as this individual salvation because our worldview is individual. If I am good, I can make my community good, and then the world will be good. But their view then was very different. It's about community. I sat this week and I went word by word in the Greek text of Ephesians and Hebrews. Talk about turning your soul inside out. What is faith? Wow, I was really confused. And when I look at Ephesians 5 about wives, submit to your husbands, and I look at the Greek text and it doesn't say submit. And it's actually part of the previous sentence about let's all submit to each other. We're a family. Mutually, we do, we love each other. And we submit to that love. And then we're less confused and there's less obedience out of... There's just less frustration. And, and it's this worldview that we've adopted and we've inserted and, and laid over the text. And we're so confused and God wants to... to to have that conversation in a community so there can be clarity. And when we compare the text to who God is, this is what we studied in Romans. The sin comes as a result of not knowing who we are, which is a result of not knowing who God is. This prayer study we're gonna do next week is so much part of this. If you don't know who God is, you cannot look at the scripture and see what God is trying to tell you. We have to spend time with the, with the creator, with the author who has authority because he's the author. He's writing things in our lives and he wrote the scripture as the purpose is not just a story. It's not just to tell you where you're wrong. It's to remind you who God is and why we were created in that image and that frustrated image of God that we live today. Why that image? needs to be restored and out of seeing what it will be when it's there how can we step closer and closer and closer through miracles and trying to figure out who God is and reflecting that how do we play a part in that it matters so much if, if you feel like scripture is disconnected from your life come listen to the prayer sermon and then you'll start to think about who God is and then you'll start to see it in your scripture and you'll realize this matters so much I am part of this story. You are invited into the, the grand narrative, the redemption of the image of God in the earth, this great thing. And we pray for miracles because we know that there is a beautiful redemption at the very end where everything will be made perfect and whole. And the Bible talks about how we can take part in that today and how you should take part in that today. And you will take part in that today. And if we can understand that story, it's so much easier to grab a hold of the miracle and believe for it and have faith. There's so much to this. I could talk to you for hours, so if you ever want to talk theology, just come by and I will literally talk to you for hours. We can discuss it. There are so many of us around here. And if we don't know the answers, I tell you we will hunt and we will hunt until it lines up with the character of God, until it looks like it fits in the context, and then until it applies to your world and your life and your part in the story. There's so much to this that matters. And we wanna teach you these next couple weeks about how to do that, to reshape. So come, being ready to be transformed by the word of God, not informed. We are not here to inform you about how to live your life. 
We're here to help you to open up and be transformed by the Holy Spirit through the word in the context of your community. Please come ready and open and come with a pen to write down questions or your tablets or computers or phones. That's what I'm looking for. We love you guys so much. If you want prayer for anything, if you need a miracle, if you just need to have a conversation, if you really need to talk, or you just want a friend, please come find somebody on our team. We're all here for you. This is a community. Let's do life. Come to the table 6 p.m. on Wednesday. Bring a story, a friend, or a dish to pass. Bring something to share. Have an awesome week.